Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofronievich. We often hear that laughter is the best medicine, but healthcare providers in Bristol have taken the message seriously and doctors at the university are now prescribing comedy courses led by comedian-in-residence Andy Belcher to help people recover from PTSD. This free service is provided by the Bristol Wellspring Settlement Social Prescribing Team and it's just one instance in the new vogue of social prescribing that's sweeping throughout practices across the country. So from arts classes to group gardening, what is social prescribing? Is it really a movement towards more holistic healthcare or a way of keeping people off antidepressants or a last resort for overburdened GPs? To discuss all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests. Gertrude Randhauer is a Professor of Diversity in Public Health and Director of the Institute for Health Research. Hi Gertrude. Hi, pleased to be here today. And Debs Teal is a Lead Peer Project Development Coordinator and herself a former user of social prescribing services. Hello Debs. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start off with the basics then. Gertrude, what is social prescribing and how new is it? So I think it's important we put it all in context. So as you sort of alluded to, we've got an increasing proportion of ageing population. And because of that, we've got an increase in multiple long-term conditions. So things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, etc. And a lot of these conditions are linked to lifestyle. And when you think about these sort of conditions, you shouldn't just be thinking about physical ill health, but you should also be thinking about psychosocial problems. So for example, people's mental and physical health and well-being. And what social prescribing offers the opportunity to do is to address some of those psychosocial issues. So I think it's quite exciting, but like all interventions, we need to ensure that we do it in a consistent way. And we make sure that both the public and the patients, but also the service providers are really clear on what we're trying to offer so that people can genuinely benefit from it. So what can social prescription be used to treat? Can it help us face any of the greatest healthcare challenges in the UK today, including perhaps the mental health legacy of COVID? I think potentially it can be used definitely to help improve people's mental well-being and physical health. But I think the challenge has always got to be about how we're going to actually make this offer accessible and that people understand 
how it's used. So, for example, in, in the UK, there's a wide range of models that exist just for social prescribing. So some people get referred to it, others can make self-referrals. But potentially, as I said, it does have the opportunity and scope to improve people's mental health and physical well-being. But I think it's only going to be successful when it's actually rolled out in a consistent way, whereby practitioners are really clear about the positives it can have. Can you tell me then, when you talk about it being rolled out in a consistent way, what does that look like? What are some of the key tenets of social prescribing that we should expect? So I think at the moment in this country, there's a lot of language about something called co-production. Now, in simple terms, my university have translated co-production into what I would call public language. So we call it talk, listen and change. And what you find historically is not just in the UK, but across the world, when people actually talk about co-production, historically, it's meant service providers have consulted on services like social prescribing and offered it in a way that service providers feel most comfortable with. Whereas if you use talk, listen and change methodology, you actually talk to communities, you talk to patients and you say, how would you like social prescribing offered to you? And then you offer it in a consistent way. And what that looks like in real terms is you would then have your local GP practice and essentially anyone in that GP practice, it doesn't matter if it's a receptionist, the nurse or the GP, they would all be able to give you consistent information about the pros and cons of social prescribing and what it can achieve and what can't achieve. And unfortunately, still in the UK, there are inconsistent messages about what social prescribing can achieve. Even within one single GP practice, you can have one professional saying it's really good and you should use it, and someone else saying, I haven't even heard of it. And therefore, that projects sort of negativity onto patients. So that's the kind of consistency I think we need, that everybody at patient level is given supportive information so that can make informed choices about whether they should use uh, social prescribing or not. Do you not think it can be organic though? Do you not think that like one day a person might come in and it'd be right for that person then the next day they can come in and it not be right for them? I think it's got to be based on how the individual is at that particular point in time at that particular part of the journey. Absolutely. And I think that's the important point. So I think from the patient's point of view, it absolutely needs to be organic. But I think it can only be organic if they are being given the right information about what social prescribing is. So when it works well, you will find that, you know, if it's a primary care practice that's offering it, the patient is able to walk in, as you say, on different days of the week and get information and make informed choices. But sometimes when it's not offered in a consistent way, you can find that a patient will walk into a practice on different days of the week and some days just not be able to access any information on social prescribing. And I think that's the danger. If we're going to offer it, we need to offer it so that everybody can access it at least, I would say, five days a week, if not seven days a week. I would say it needs to be out not just in the GP surgeries. I very rarely went to my GP surgery, so I wouldn't have been targeted for a social prescribing. I think it needs to be in all healthcare settings, ambulance, pharmacy, 
clinics, I think the more options we have open, the more chance we have of getting people the choice of how they treat and how they want to be treated. Yes, and Debs, you've stated that you yourself are living proof that social prescribing can and does change not just one life, but very many. Can you tell us a bit about your story and your experience with social prescribing? Yeah, I've been in the mental health system from the age of eight, although it wasn't really a mental health system then. And I was described as having bad nerves. That's what they called it back then. And it reached a point 11 years ago where I was on 21 tablets a day. I was often bed bound because of the medication and because of the illness itself. And my children were my carers. And I'd lost my mum in 2010. And the psychiatrist said to me that I would always be ill. I would always be medicated and I would never work again. Now, he was the expert. He knew what he was talking about. So I felt I'd been given a terminal life sentence and I didn't particularly want to live with that. I've been being in the system for 40 odd years. It didn't sound very inviting. So I ended up taking an overdose. I wanted out of here. I woke up in hospital opposite a lady who was dying of cancer. She had a wonderful palliative care plan in place and by rights she should. But I felt jealous that she was being cared for when all I was getting was more medication and being told this is the best your life's going to get. I was so jealous of this lady who was dying and I absolutely despised myself that I'd failed in the suicide. Part of being discharged from hospital was that I had to go see a psychologist. I already felt a burden to my daughters, to society, to my partner. So giving me more services made me feel even more of a burden. But I went because that was the only way I could get out of hospital. Whilst I was there, I saw a leaflet, Art for Wellbeing. Not really done art before, so it was just, I don't know why I picked the leaflet up, but I did. I took the leaflet in for the assessment and they didn't know a great deal about it, but they said, just give them a ring. I rang the number. There was an art class starting literally 10 minutes from my house in a few days' time. So my friend took me, dropped me off, and I sat down at the art class and that's the day my life changed. Since then, I've been off all medication for nearly 10 years now. I've been out of services for six and a half. I work in the same NHS as that expert who told me I'd never work again. But I feel like the quality of my life is very different to the quality of life that I had way back then. I feel like I'm actually living a life now. And I've still got all the ailments and the illnesses, but I can live with them. I can deal with them. I see them as challenges now. My whole outlook on life is very different. I see things very differently, both physically and metaphorically. I'm off benefits for the first time in 14 and a half years. I'm working. I'm I'm bringing an income in. I'm feeling alive. I've sold countless paintings. I've done talks. I started doing talks initially to service users, which is what we call patients in the mental health system, because I felt that I'd been given no hope. I was at rock bottom and, you know, the the psychiatrist saying this is the best you're going to get. And I started saying to him, you know, look, you can go to university, you can get all these letters and numbers before and after your name, but nobody can learn what it's like to be us. Only we can do that. We're all experts in ourselves and we need help unlocking that potential. From there, then I was asked to do talks at expert events and I I thought, well, what can I teach that? You know, what can I say to them? But I learned that it's the human perspective. And a lot of people who'd come through psychiatry and psychology had learned quite a bit on the technicalities of it. But a lot of them lacked the human side of it. And that's what I was teaching them. 
And people often ask me, what was it about art that worked? It's holistic. Nobody didn't treat me well throughout the care, but they only treat my illnesses. They didn't treat me. Where's art? It was an holistic approach. It allowed me to heal myself. It allowed me to deal with issues and problems that I'd had for 40 odd years in a way that was constructive to me to make me see my illness for what it was and make me deal with my illness. I've still got all the labels that I had back then, but I can control them now. I can deal with them now in a, in a much more proactive and better way that allows me to move forward and to keep doing the things I do. So you mentioned art classes as one example, but where else are we seeing social prescribing being put into practice? It can be anything, and that's the beauty of social prescribing. It's creativity. It's anything that's creative. It can be sports. It can be dancing, singing. I know there's a lot of singing for health with COVID recovery. Um, to help people build up the lung capacity again. We've even done pigeon racing in Yorkshire. You know, so it can be anything that people want it to be. There's no constraints on it. And because it's creativity, it's universal. It can cover any culture, any religion. You know, there's no limits to it. That all sounds really positive and it's worth remembering, I suppose, that this really isn't a fringe phenomenon, even though it's very broad. So social prescribing is now part of NHS England's long-term plan. But do you think that the NHS is equipped to manage or even monitor the impact of social prescribing when it covers all of these really broad areas? That's where I have an issue because how can you measure somebody's quality of life? Yes, I'm no longer in services. Yes, I'm no longer medicated. But my quality of life is astronomical up to what it was. They did social return on investment just on my my case alone. And they got to £33,000 that they're saving per year. I'm just one person. Just by doing an art class, it's saving £33,000 a year. I've been in that system for 40-odd years. But the benefits are there. Whether you're looking at financial benefits or quality of life benefits, I know which one I prefer. With 25% of NHS doctors tired now to the point of impairment, do you think that social prescribing is an excuse for GPs to shift the burden from already overwhelmed healthcare services? No, not at all. I think we only have to, you know, listen and take heart from Debs's such powerful story that really the benefits she's gained are not because of you know, tired healthcare services, the benefit she's gained is because people have found an opportunity to find some activities that she obviously feels great benefit from. Um, And I think that's what we need to do. So I I genuinely feel that across the world, we we need to see non-medical interventions, such as social prescribing, as being part and parcel of how we maintain our mental health and well-being and I do get nervous when systems privilege if you like the medical model where everything is assumed that you must become unwell and once you become unwell you're given a prescription normally for uh, some kind of medical treatment or like with COVID you know you're given the vaccine whereas you know prevention is better than cure is the old adage that obviously as a public health professor I'm a a big advocate for and I think you know as you've just heard from Debs there's massive health and well-being benefits 
from social prescribing. It also helps people with health-related behaviours. It can help people to increase their physical activity, reduce alcohol consumption, reduce intake of unhealthy foods, all because of participating in the wide range of social prescribing programmes. And also people's self-esteem can be seen to increase from taking these programmes. And issues such as social interactions can improve and therefore people sometimes who may previously have been feeling isolated or lonely feel far more now, if you like, part of a community, no matter how small that may be. So I think there's huge benefits from social prescribing and it shouldn't be seen as being in competition with the sort of medical model of prescribing. It should be seen as complementary to that. Yeah, I agree. It's got to be a complement to, to traditional services, to other services. But it also it's also the ethos of personalised care. Yes, you might be going to an art class with other people, but for you it's personal. Whereas if you're just given a bottle of pills, that's not really personal. So it's looking at the way people are treated differently. And if you've been in a mental health system for 40 years where you've never had the driving seat and somebody else has always taken over your care, it's good to be have that responsibility. I suppose it's like taking back control over your own healthcare in that way. And we've talked a lot about holistic healthcare too, but do you think that health workers often do take into account things like symptoms, life conditions outside of what's presented to them in the clinic or that they have the time and resources necessary to do so? Well, they do have a lot more time and resources than what the GP does. You certainly do get more time with them. And by spending that time with them, they can work out what it, what might be best for you. You know, I've never been able to sit with a GP and say, well, actually, I wouldn't mind trying this. It's always been about the ailments that I've gone. You get 10 minutes if that, you know, and it's like, bam, bam, bam. These are what I've got. And you prescribe something and out the door. They don't actually listen to your journey because they haven't got the time. And Debs, I was really interested to read about how your art class costs something like £2,000 over the course of two years versus the £2,500 you are spending each year on medication alone. That's not taking into account things like your long-term independent income, the fact that you've mentioned you're no longer on benefits. Do you think that social prescribing could actually be more cost-effective in the long term? Possibly. Now, it's not a magic cure. The, you know, there's some people it will work really well for and some people it won't. But I'm just saying let's use it as an option. And if it works well for people, then that's great. When I went for that assessment with the psychologist where I saw the leaflet, I was put on a 19-month waiting list. I had seven issues that they identified I needed help with. 19 months down the line after doing the art class and when I'd finally started seeing the psychologist, I had one issue. So that will be more cost-effective You know, I mean, if patients can work out how to heal themselves, how to feel better in life, how to have some inspiration to keep going rather than lose all hope, then surely that's more positive for the patient and the results will speak for themselves. Now, Bogdan Chiva Gertzia, who's founder of NHS England's National Social Prescribing Student Champion Scheme, suggests that students who've never had contact with social prescribing at school don't seem to use it and they just perceive it as adding stress to their existing workload. Gertz, do GPs get any training in social prescription and where should that start? 
So this goes back to my issue about consistency and offer. It's so vital that we do train healthcare staff. But I agree with Deb, it shouldn't just be in primary care. You know, if we really want to do this in a holistic way, we should be thinking about supporting social workers, health visitors, school nurses, as well as GPs and um, practice nurses, so that at any point, if members of the public want support, the range of health and social care staff are able to knowledgeably talk to them about the social prescribing offer that's available in their local level. And I think that's what we need. We need not just at sort of primary care level, because we, we we need to remember that a lot of people, believe it or not, I know GPs are really busy, a lot of people actually don't access primary care. I think we've got to make sure that there are many ways in to social prescribing. So I think between the local authority sector, the local charity sector and the healthcare sector, I think social prescribing should be something that we all want to see something that's a normal thing to address. I agree, but I I go further in that. We need housing staff to be trained. We need Department of Work and Pension staff to be trained so they can refer or input, so they can add to that person's journey because people who might be struggling to find a house, people who are on benefits are more marginalised, so they might not have the options that somebody who is able to go to the GP and say, actually, I'm not feeling very well. If we can spot people who might not attend the GP for whatever reason or, you know, who who are struggling to find a home or who are struggling on the benefits, if we can capture them in that field as well, I think that's a really good way to introduce social prescribing. Gertrude, you mentioned the medical model earlier. Do you think there's still a skew towards physical rather than emotional or mental health provisions in healthcare? And why might that be? I don't want to sound too controversial, but I think the pharmaceutical companies have a large say in this, I'm afraid. So I think, you know, you know, I, I talk about this actually in, in terms of COVID as well, that, you know, we, we find that ideologically politicians across the world find it easier to, if you like, buy into medical models because it means that all the good things that Debs is describing around housing, education, healthcare, which are long-term issues that can't always be solved within a four- to five-year election cycle. If you like, politicians don't have to worry about them, whereas with medical treatments, you can you can be seen to be having a vaccine, you can be seen to be taking a pill or whatever and be seen, if you like, to be the saviour for the public quite quickly. Whereas we know that long term, what we should be focusing on is improving people's health. And if we are a health service, focusing on their health and well-being rather than at the moment, what we really are, if we're really true to this, is it's not a national health service at all at the moment. It's a national sickness service because we're waiting for people to become unwell and only then are we treating them and we're treating them majority of the time with pharmaceutical interventions. And I think that's the issue that ideologically in the UK we're talking about, you know, levelling up and building back better, etc. But that needs to translate just from words to, to actual tangible action. 
And I'm curious as well, what about those more difficult conditions where the symptoms might be mental, but the causes can be physiological? For instance, like the menopause, would social prescribing work in instances like that? The issue is this, that the mental health well-being, as Debs has already mentioned, it's still important and it's it's no less valid to deal with these issues. And we know that social prescribing offers can help people improve their mental health and well-being, be that for menopause or be that for stress or any other condition. So I think that's one of the joys of social prescribing. It's got so many applications and in a sense... What I would like to see is this being offered as sort of business as usual across society and not seen as the exception. I agree with that fully. I would love GPs to refer to a social prescribing before they reach for the medicine pad. I'm not against medicine. I think there's a time and a place for medication and counselling. But I think because of the side effects, let's try At the very first art class that I did, I knew something was coming alive. You know, if if we can stop people from going down that where they're on medication. I mean, most of my adult life I've been on medication and I got to 21 tablets a day. If we can stop people reaching those extremes, then surely that's better for them and better for society. Is the move to better integrate social prescription into our healthcare services now a matter of when, not if? And if so, what do you think needs to change? Well, because NHS and personalised care have have sort of harnessed this. I mean, social prescribing has been happening for decades without the NHS coming along, but they've taken it on board to harness it within their health service. So they're trying to integrate it into people's care and well-being. And with the personalised care package that they're trying to offer, rather than saying, what's the matter with you? It's, you know, how can we help you? And he's looking at it very differently. And I think it just needs to change in the way that it's a universal approach through all primary care networks, GPs, clinics, services, so that people get the best care for them at each appointment rather than their labels. I agree with all of that. But I also think we do need consistency in messaging to health and social care providers so that they genuinely understand what social prescribing is, the value it can bring to the patients and, as I said, consistency, therefore, in how it's articulated to patients and in an ideal world across the setting. So, as Debs has said, you know, it'd be ideal if we could offer it in not just housing, I guess, even I'm, I'm thinking now, you know, even when we go to a library or a a children's centre, as well as the more traditional health and social care settings. And I think that's what, if you like, the opportunity of now moving to integrated care systems brings, that we could maybe get far more equitable coverage across the country. And especially post-COVID, is there a value in encouraging people to go out in the world that we could all benefit from? Well, from my perspective, absolutely. COVID brought my anxiety back. It made me anxious to go out. I know it's made a lot of people who never had mental health problems before suddenly feel claustrophobic, agoraphobic and, you know, unable to go out. If we can connect people back into their community, if we can support that, move back to the community I think that can only be good if we can encourage people to start connecting and doing something that they like I mean 
the art class for me, it became a hobby. I'm, I'm sat here in, in my office and part of it is an office and the other half is my art studio. I still use my art today. It's still my well-being tool. If we can give people those skills for life, then they're not going to come back into the service. I think absolutely, you know, COVID has really shone a light on health inequalities. And I think therefore, you know, we it, it really does emphasise the need that we have to be focusing on all of our health and well-being. And I just hope that the government and the health and social care system can really, you know, live up to this ethos of levelling up and make sure that social prescribing is offered across the country to all communities. And if they are forced, if you like, to make a choice because of resources, because inevitably that happens, I would argue that social prescribing should be prioritised for the areas with the greatest health needs because historically what tends to happen is these kind of interventions tend to be accessed more so by more educated and more affluent communities because they are just better equipped to engage with self-care activities um, because you know they're not having to work as many long hours as people who are on lower paid wages um, so I think, you know, if there is going to be any rationing of healthcare, we should be rationing to support the communities in the greatest healthcare need. Absolutely. But we also must invest in social prescribing. We cannot expect the voluntary sector to keep bailing it out. We need to keep funding it properly and, and, and making sure that the money is levelled out, as you say. Fantastic. Debs and Gurch, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having thank me. Thank you so much. Now, listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. This is Yelena Sofronievich signing out of the Bunker. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jelen Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.